Degree Absolutionists, it's Clemic here. Before we begin today's episode about the three lives of Thomasina, I just wanted to give you a heads up that there were some unfortunate technical problems with our great guest Josh Spiegel's audio track. You'll hear what I mean. There's a sort of unpleasant metallic echo sometimes. Tried everything I could to fix it, just, just couldn't get it any better than the way you hear it here. We're very grateful, Glenn and I, to, to Josh for coming on the show and contributing his his thoughts and his expertise and good humor when it comes to all things Disney to this conversation. Again, sorry the audio's a little hinky in a few places, but I think you'll still enjoy the episode, which begins now. this dog, Mrs. Langan? Fifteen years and a bit. I've had him since he was a puppy, the year my husband died. He's been ailing a wee bit this past year, but not so sick as this. He's very old. Uh, the kindest thing if it have him put to sleep. Oh, no. Uh, now you can see how bad he is with the asthma. The poor dog can hardly breathe. He's in pain, Mrs. Langan. But you can't put Robbie to sleep, Mr. McDewey. He's all I have in the world. Couldn't you give him a wee bit of medicine to tide him over till he's well again? Mrs. Lagan, there is no medicine that can make him well. He's very old, he's in great pain, and his life is a misery to him, can't you see? I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack ass inflections from Patrick McCoon, Chris and Glenn made a separate claps but you'll fix it in post you'll fix it yes i will and how heartening to know that a decade plus into your npr career you now understand how recording works we don't clap man we have people who clap for us oh <laughs> you got me to clap for you that's, i got, that's, I, got uh, I always clap for you, chris oh. sometimes it's golf claps all right glenn sometimes well you know what rounded thing that does that that makes more noise so to, to make sure that we're all we're all loose and lubricated and, and ready for this for this recording, I'm going to do uh, some some quick warm ups. Uh, I'm just going to throw out some questions. Either of you can answer. Okay. All, all right. right. Are we all ready? Yeah. Okay. What is thirty seven plus seventeen? Fifty four. There you go. Outstanding. What is fifty two plus two? Fifty four. Very good. What is one hundred twenty eight divided by two? Sixty four. Chris. Oh, hey. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, I fucked that up. What is 108 divided by 2? There you go. It's 54. 54. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is 1,134 divided by 21? Yeah, it's 54, Chris. Let's go. 
Keep it moving. What was the title of the sitcom that aired on NBC from September 1961 to April 1963? The story of two New York City police officers based in the fictional 53rd precinct of the Bronx. I am prepared to give a hint if either of you need a hint. What if I said the Munsters? What if I said the Munsters just unironically? Way, way, way off. Are you sure? Way off. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's one of the rare sitcoms that has a question mark in the title, so so there's there's a hint. Uh, Car fifty four, where are you? Outstanding, you're on fire tonight, Glenn. Um, a Manhattan nightclub, yeah, opened by Steve Rebell and each. Yep. <laughs> are you going to ask about the movie with Mike Myers and uh, Ryan Phillippe? Right, wasn't that the yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another one, right? Wasn't there like a rival Studio fifty four movie around the same I think time? There was. It was one of those things like. Deep impact and volcano and uh, okay, just one last question and <laughs> and Dante's and, Peak and volcano. That's that's deep impact and Armageddon. Yeah, there we go. That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay, Josh, I'm going to ask you to to let Glenn have this last one just because he's he's such a, a rabid sports fan. MLB pitcher Rich Goose Gossage pitched for nine teams over a 22 season career. Was famed for his distinct facial hair, but that's not the subject of our question. The subject of our question, Glenn. What was the number of his uniform? It was 54, Chris. Happy birthday, you old space pirate. That, that, that's, that was such a long walk for such a small <laughs> thimble full of water. But thank you, Chris. Uh, my my birthday, dear, dear friend. Who is... <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Enriching my life with his brilliant humor and good fellowship since he was a uh, mere 861 divided by 21. Ugh. Okay, I'm not going to do that because that's actually that's actual math. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to let you off the hook here, buddy. Uh, Yay! <laughs> I hope you're doing something fun after this. <laughs> we did something fun before. We'll do something fun after. But now it's just this long, dark purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> Grit your teeth. Yep. And get through it, buddy. Well, celebrating this uh, holiest of days with us tonight uh, is the creator of That Still Small Voice, the only Disney newsletter you'll ever need. He is the co-host, was the co-host with, with Scott Renshaw of the Mousterpiece Cinema Podcast, which ran for 439 episodes. Uh, I, I think this is our 33rd, Glenn? Is it? Not counting our lost episode, which is, uh, according to my calculations, less, fewer than 439 <laughs> His Twitter polls, which determine irrevocably and for all time which Disney film, character, theme park ride, etc. is superior, inspire furious debate far beyond the confines of the Magic Kingdom and perhaps even within it. He is Josh Spiegel. Welcome, Josh, to a degree absolute. Woo! Thank you both for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And boy, when you hear 439 episodes, I can't believe I did that many over eight and a half years. You guys, you're almost there. You're right behind me. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It feels like it, Josh. I think that's just emotionally it feels like it, but I don't think we're there yet. But uh, yeah, and I was so pleased to see uh, that people will know when we're taping this because today on on Twitter, you expressed a very clear-eyed view of the Disney, Disney living. Is that what it's called? The residential community of tomorrow that they're proposing? <laughs> Glenn, I hate to correct you, but it's actually called Story Living, which really rolls off Ooh. the tongue. Oh, it's so much worse. It's so much worse. Can I tell you something? Disney has won that day's worth of PR because if you go to the website oh, for yeah. Story Living by Disney, it's just like the most Blech. basic home community, like a real estate website, <laughs> but it just has Disney's yeah. logo stamped everywhere. And it's like, good for you guys. Uh -huh. You you got the word out for a housing community. Congrats. 
Yeah, but they have precedent, right? Because Celebration, which is this kind of Stepford Wife crazy place. I mean, they, that, is that what they're proposing? You think? Is this what we're gonna? They're gonna plant this these seeds like pods, like <laughs> body snatcher pods all over the country? Is that what's happening? I mean, I think that in the ideal version, where CEO Bob Chapek talks about the metaverse as if he knows what it means, that yes, that is absolutely <laughs> the the goal. I mean, the other thing we should actually rewind further than celebration, because as you may have been alluding to, Walt Disney's vision for Epcot was vastly different yep. than the Epcot we have. He yep, wanted yep, yep. a a domed city. Epcot stood for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. It was going to be a place where people worked and lived, and it was going to be a lot more insular than even whatever this thing turns into. So, yeah, I saw the Mm -hmm. phrase Disney adults trending all day on Twitter and, uh, you know, Pop Culture (laughs) Happy uh, Hour's own Aisha Mm -hmm. Harris was pointing out that... Who is a Disney adult, yep. She is, but, but she pointed out that it's like there's different like degrees of being a Disney adult. There's, I am a grown person as I am. I have kids. I love Disney, but I also don't like obsess that much about Disney Uh quite so much. Uh And that's, I think that's the challenge. And especially for somebody who did a weekly podcast about Disney movies, it's a really hard distinction to make to say, I conditionally love Disney. That's how I used to put it on the show because mm-hmm. I remember I remember once realized, I, I don't know if either of you ever saw Saving Mr. Banks, which is a truly uh, baffling film. I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I, no. This, this is Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney or no. Is that mm-hmm. the one? Yep. Okay. Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney. Emma Thompson plays P.L. Travers, who's the author of the Mary Poppins books, which, of course, led to the wildly popular film Mary Poppins, which I am sure we will mention not ever again during this recording. Not once. Mm-hmm. Going to have to come mm-hmm. up. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, it, it was the prequel to Mary Poppins Returns, as I as I recall. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was called? <laughs> Mary Poppins Returns? The, yes, the... it was. And. Saving Mr. Banks is such a weird film because it's about how P.L. Travers did not want Disney to make a movie with animation, music, or Dick Van Dyke. So essentially, (laughs) she's the villain of the movie about her own writing. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, who is this for? There are people who unconditionally love Disney, the Disney adults of the world who think everything they do is perfect. Are they going to want to watch a movie Mm -hmm. about a woman who hates a film they probably love? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. There are people who hate Mm -hmm. Disney entirely. They're a horrible corporation. They're gobbling up everything in the world, which is becoming an increasingly harder uh, argument for me to dismiss. (laughs) 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 They're not going to want to watch a movie about Mary Poppins because it's just Disney hagiography. And then there are the people who don't really care about Disney one way or the other. Sure, I see a Marvel movie every once in a while. I go to the parks if my kids want to. Are they going to kill? So Uh it it just, it was, I was thinking about that again today because I was thinking, who is this really for (laughs) outside of the very rich? Because I'm sure, I'm sure a uh, community in Palm Springs, California uh, probably costs a little bit of money. That's just a wild Uh guess on my part. I feel comfortable in making Uh that guess, but yeah, it's been an interesting day for Disney, let alone for Glenn's birthday. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the gift that keeps on giving is, is people yammering about (laughs) Celebration Florida. There's this monologuist, Mike Daisy, who uh, probably best known now for having um, made up a few key parts of his monologue, The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, after presenting that show to the world as having been a pure work of, of nonfiction uh, uh, like a decade or so ago. Um, but anyway, he has debuted a lot of his monologues here at Woolly Mammoth Theater in D.C., and I've written about him a lot. And I think my favorite of his shows was called 
American Utopias. No relation to American Utopia Singular, the David Byrne Broadway <laughs> show from some years later. It was about him going to Burning Man, going to the Occupy uh, protests when those were happening in 2012 or so, and going to Disneyland as as an adult with a a cohort of adults. It was like I, you know, in my late 30s when this happened, and I I was the youngest person in our group. I, I don't think he used the term Disney adult. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it had not been been coined as yet. My big Disney gripe is that neither the subject of her inquiry today, The Three Lives of Thomasina, nor our, our immediate prior film, it's, it's near contemporary, The Three Lives of Romney Marsh. Neither of these are available on Disney+. Plus. Like, what the hell? What am I paying for if I can't get this sort of, you know, mid-century, uh, not yet recycled um, kind, of, kind of vintage Disney content? Uh, is uh, shit like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, is that also on Disney+, Plus? <sighs> I don't think so. I I don't think that might be mobile. That's probably not on. (laughs) Oh, the no boy, the gnome mobile. You're bringing me back. I mean, Darby O'Gill, I think, (laughs) I think Darby O'Gill is because they're easy. That might be easier to sell as Irish James Bond. Look, kids, right, it's true. Sure. Yeah, but but I'm mean, you know it's funny because uh, he's he's just as Irish as he is British. It's uh, it's a really <laughs> a showcase for the versatility of uh, of Sean Connery. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I guess I wasn't that surprised that Three Lives of Thomasina is not on Disney Plus, if only because anybody who knows my Twitter knows I get exhausting every month when I see, oh look, here's what's coming next month on Disney Plus, and there's absolutely nothing from before like five years ago and there's so many films and tv shows and documentaries and animated shorts and what have you that haven't been put on disney plus that aren't hung up with streaming deals oh unfortunately this is on hbo max right now we can't put on disney plus that kind of nonsense and i I was at the beginning of this because i'd never seen the three lives of thomasina before watching well i mean i i hadn't seen the first two lives of thomasina i wanted to be a completist (laughs) (laughs) yep that's sort of consensus right that you can just start with the second life because uh the the first one is kind of long and boring and was rushed out before the visual effects were done and yeah. exactly that by the way that was the joke i warned you guys uh, a couple days ago i was gonna spring on you here on the show it's a good one solid worth the wait of course it was all dead jokes are uh, but the thing is i'd never seen it before and as i was watching it for this podcast i was asking myself the question why isn't this on Disney Plus? And then about halfway through, a cat walked up a literal stairway to heaven to a Sphinx god, and I thought, oh, that's why yeah. it's not on Disney Plus. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Oh, we'll I, get that, there. that was not not where I was expecting this this film to go. Glenn, you know, since since it's your special day, and since I I have to do the real heavy lifting in the preamble uh, this mm-hmm. time, why, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off? Why don't you do the like the the pre preamble? Why are we talking about the Three Lives of Thomasina with Josh Spiegel of uh, Masterpiece Cinema. Uh, <clears throat> in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, mostly, is referred to only by their number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series. I should probably say short-lived. I think that's how you're supposed to say it. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Hell yeah, it was. Nicely done, Glenn. And before that, there was a three-lived 
Damn, I can't, I can't quite pull it off. Um, for that, there was a hiatus of nearly two years in between the initial 30-minute incarnation of Danger Man and its revamp as an hour-long series that found greater success. And in that, in that interregnum? I would say caesura. But uh, you can say interranium. What do you think, Josh? This is this is a word I've never spoken aloud before. It's in that interranium. In, inter, inter, oh, it's a hard G. It's a hard G, like dramaturg. Mm. Okay, interregnum. He did some work for the Walt Disney Megalith, including the subject of our prior episode, Doctor Sin, aka the Scarecrow, aka the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, and the subject of today's inquiry: the Three Lives of Thomasina. They did. Regrettably, our man Patty McGee did not perform the voice of the cat, mm. a la Bill Murray. Um, oh, that yeah. was Elspeth March, who was 52 when she recorded her role. I don't know why I felt like that was important to look up. I don't know how uh, how, how old I want a cat voice to be. Mm. Anyway, welcome to the private, personal, by hand, tangent tolerant, but properly punctuated punch card driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and related documents. Mm-hmm. And we push it like a child. Okay, tie- oh, up, 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 up. oh, oh we sorry. Gotta, we yep. got to prep. We got to yep. prep we the do. guests. We do. We do. <laughs> this, I'm sorry. I'm excited. Some heavy lifting, not just for you, but for poor suffering Joshua. At this point, Josh, we are going. Chris is going to do a riff on a uh, on a, a catchphrase. It's not say. a catchphrase, Glenn. A a popular quote from the the prisoner, and <laughs> uh, he will riff on these in in a very various ways, and we are to rate. Each one, and there are, I hope there's six. Are there six, Chris? There should be six. Yeah. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Um, so thematically it works. Uh, on, a, on a scale of one to six, one being terrible, six being great. All right, back Just to you, Chris. Just standard, standard metric system. Standard metric system. You know how things are scored and how, how numbers work. I don't know why, why Glenn needs to go off on this pedantic. Every time, every time. Got to prep, got to prep the people. All right. We push it, like a child tying a bonnet on the head of her cat. Do you push that? Are you pushing a bonnet? I guess you could push a bonnet onto the head of a cat. I'm going to give that a five, me. Uh, I'm going to go with a four on that one. I'm a hard grader. <laughs> oh, not, not nearly as, as hard as, uh, as Gwen. Usually. Um, we file it, like a veterinarian preparing a character defamation suit against the three children who set out to convince the fictional Scottish town of... In Veronok, in which he has only just recently settled, that he's a euthanasia merchant so uncaring he didn't even try to save the pet of his his very own daughter. Violent yeah, like there's that. a they set up a whisper network, so that is actionable, <laughs> uh, and I would think he should file a claim. And uh, so I think that's a, that's another five for me, Chris. Good job. Wow. This is already like the highest aggregate score I've ever gotten from you. <laughs> I'll give that a five as well because the kid, yeah, I mean, yes, that is a very actionable claim, I think, for him to file. Mm-hmm. Uh, we stamp it like Mr. It seems to me it should be doctor. I don't know if veterinarians are not doctors or, or what, but like Mr. Andrew McDewey looking at a beloved pet's medical chart and whipping out his rubber stamp that says, kill it. <laughs> well, Chris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock that down to a four because while I can Im- imagine it happening, we don't actually see it happening in the movie, so that's a four for me. Yeah, I'm going to go with a four on that one as well. Filing, like stamping it, I feel like you're a little shakier on that one. <laughs> okay. Yep. Okay. We brief it. Like Mr. McDewey's entirely off-screen courtship of Laurie McGregor, the Red Witch of the Glen. 
It's entirely off screen. Uh, yeah, five. Five, Chris, here. You see, I, I, I keep lecturing Chris about the, the need for these to be uh, appropriate to the top subject at hand and also pithy. Um, and, and these are meeting this criteria, believe it or not, Josh, these are meeting that criteria a lot more than... I'm, I'm, only, I'm, I'm only obeying your stupid rules this one time yeah, because, yeah. because good, it's good, your good. birthday. Appreciate it. Yeah. Five. I'm Five. going with a perfect six on that one because the romance <laughs> is... Whoa! Yeah, we playing, we playing, what you... What you step your ass up! What you want to do? And get your ass knocked Here's the thing. The romance is incredibly useless, shoehorned in, and unfortunately like a lot of romances in the 60s, 70s era Disney movies. So that was, yeah, no, I was not a fan of it. So I am on board with uh, taking that romance down. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, right. Now I figure out what awesome music drop I'm going to have to give myself for the six, for the, the perfect dirty half dozen. Uh, we debrief it. Like Mr. McDewey preparing to bathe, presumably, even though he appears to keep his jacket and tie on, even in the middle of the, of the night. Never never takes his damn tie off. Never takes his vest off. Okay, okay. I, that needed to be explained to me because I don't remember a bathing scene because I, I certainly would. Uh, that's a, I'm going to give you a four for that, Chris. Still appropriate. Still relatively on grading on a sliding scale of Chris. Pithy. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, four for me. Yeah, four for me as well. A little bit of a longer walk than I was waiting for on that one, but sure. yeah. It's a long walk. It's a long walk. Look, Don Draper got plenty of action without ever taking a shirt off that I can recall. So, so mm. this is this is fine. Um, we number it like the single-digit sum of seconds, uh, Mr. McDee McDewey. That's a that's just a hard. I in, in Veronach is easier for me than McDewey somehow. Um, we number it like the single-digit sum of seconds. Mr. McDewey spends trying to persuade his grieving daughter to talk to him after she's claimed that he's dead and he brings her an adorable puppy in the hope of replacing her her cat. Doesn't spend a lot of time waiting for her to warm up to the, the idea, um, so we number it like like that. Okay, that was uh, that needed to be explained to me, and it was not pithy, so that's... <laughs> oh, I hate to do this to you, man, but it's two. It's two. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Grade point average down. I guess I'll be a little politer. I'm going to give you a three because of the trail off at the end. It was like if you had wrapped it up a little quicker, could have been a four. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk McGoons. We're going to talk MacGuffins or inquiry into this unclassifiable and unforgettable television landmark and related documents and ephemera is not of a degree piddling. Nope. It is not of a degree trifling. No, it ain't. It is not of a degree subsidiary. Uh-uh. What is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute, Chris. Say it loud, and there's music playing. Say it soft, and it's almost like praying. Uh-huh. Who is the most self-reliant animal made since the world began? Do we need to ask more than that? You must know now it's a cat, but a very important cat at that who's called... Thomasina! Thomasina! From the best-selling novel by Paul Gallico, Walt Disney brings to the screen The Three Lives of Thomasina, the story of a remarkable and wondrous cat who offers three of her nine lives to these people. 
So how this is going to work, Josh, is I am going to go through the plot of this film, and I'm going to do it in what I think could generously be called exhausting detail, uh, scene by scene. And you must, at any point, just stop me, because I'm going to be booming through this. So if there's anything you want to bring up, any point related in the scene I'm discussing, just stop, jump in. To Mary's father, Thomasina offers hope. Can you save him? I'll do what I can. Stay with him, Angus. And the courage to fight for what he believes. Get the boys out of here. Keep clear <laughs> To the beautiful and mysterious Lori, Thomasina offers a magical skill and the power to use it. If only I had the skill you have. I'm much of a way of taking the fear out of these wild creatures, making them trust you that I wish I had. But I'm a witch. Remember? Oh, you must be. about The Three Lives of Thomasina in 1963, uh, created as Chris mentioned in the Cesora, which I prefer to say, in between Danger Man version 1 and Danger Man version 2, was directed by Don Chaffee. Oh, yes. Such agreeable schlock as uh, Jason and the Argonauts, One Million Years B.C., Raquel Welch in the fur bikini, that was all him. As seen briefly in uh, the Best Picture nominee, Belfast. Okay. A little clip of that movie. The original Pete's Dragon, which have you seen, Josh? Uh, I, I have seen, I did an episode on the original Pete's Dragon, like 10 or 15 episodes in, way back when, and boy, I oh, did wow. not like it anymore. When I was a kid, I liked that it. That was like 424 episodes ago, Josh. Basically, it was, and I, I was just awestruck at how sweaty and desperate it is there are some mm -hmm. parts of that movie that are really wonderful candle in the water is a great song i'm i don't know if the okay. kids would say it bangs and or slaps but it's a good song <laughs> uh i will tell you though that that movie is responsible for my favorite disney remake because the david lowry remake from 2016 i think it's really great because i keep hearing that's good it's a good movie because it, it does what none of the other remakes do. It says, we're going to take the title, we're going to take the basic premise, and we're going to do everything else differently. And all the other ones are basically, you know, shot for shot remakes. David Lowry was free to do what he wanted, oh, which sure. was mercifully very much unlike what Don Chaffee did. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, when, when I interviewed Alex Cox last year on, on the show about his, his fine prisoner book, I Am Not a Number, uh, he described the directors that McGuin hired to work on The Prisoner as the guys who did the bits between monsters and Ray Harryhausen movies. And I, and I thought that was just a sick burn that he came up with off the cuff. You know, I thought it was hyperbole. Did not realize that was a purely 100% accurate description of Don Chafee. <laughs> well, I mean, this guy went on to do multiple episodes of Danger Man, multiple episodes of The Avengers and The Prisoner. So, like, he bestrode that particular era, that particular genre, like a colossus. Those first four episodes of The Prisoner yeah. that they all shot in that one mega shoot in September of 66, uh, Arrival and Chimes of Big Ben and, and uh, Checkmate, those were all him. Yep. And I would say that in the, he spent the 70s and 80s uh, being enormously, I would say, popularly successful, if not uh, aesthetically successful, churning out stuff like directing Fantasy Island, TJ Hooker's, Vegas's, Matt Houston's, Charlie's Angels's, and MacGyver's. Okay. What do you have against Airwolves, Glenn? 
I don't think he did Airwolves. I looked for Airwolves. Yeah, I, I found did. an Airwolf. Okay. It was an Airwolf. Airwolf. Also, the, the the show that my parents used to make me take a nap in the afternoon if I wanted to stay up to 9 p.m. to watch or, Chips. Or was that Blue Thunder, Chris? Because, you know, they're, <sighs> they're awfully similar helicopter <laughs> action shows. That's, that's an absurd suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Josh, just so you know, uh, and as I've talked success before, I really resisted doing these Patrick McGowan movies because I thought we were scraping the bottom and then we go in barrel. I thought we are diluting the brand. But I got to say, for this particular film, there is a lot of classic Patty McGee content in this thing. This is, he's, he's difficult. He's off-putting. He's tetchy. I mean, the DNA of what McGowan is bringing to the prisoner is all over this thing. Mm-hmm. You, you, you don't need the black light. You don't need the luminol. <laughs> it's on the hotel bedspread. <laughs> he likes to throw a punch. He throws a punch here. He oh, likes... And he throws that, that same kind of like wacky roundhouse punch. Uh-huh. Like it looks more like a dance move than a than an actual blow. Uh, exactly the way he's he's punching those guys on, on the beach in, uh, in Arrival. Yep. He likes to not kiss a girl. And <laughs> he does that here. He yeah, likes so to... the, the inspiration for that, that classic Disney song from Little Mermaid to Don't Kiss the Girl. Mm-hmm. Inspired by the, the life of Patrick Bagoon. Howard Ashman was a big McGowan fan, for sure. <laughs> big McGowan fan. Big McGowan fan. He likes to suddenly explode at a woman with anger, not in the fun, sexy way. Now tell your throat out! <laughs> you need to come now! Um, I will say, though, and I want to hear what you guys have to think about this. Looking at this from 2022 vibes, this movie kept promising me something a lot more fun, a lot more dark, a lot more creepy that it ended up delivering for a host of reasons I would be on board for the gritty horror Three Lives of Thomasina reboot because the bones are there. You could make yeah. a really fucking great folk horror thing. If you get a Robert Eggers, you get a Robert Zombie. No, get David Lowry. Let him tell me can do whatever he wants. You, you have to you have to use the title. It's not bad. Like a hybrid of, of Disney and Pet Cemetery, right? That's it feels like that's what you're looking for <laughs> with this. I mean um, and, and here's Here's the thing. So I my I have to at least ground this from my perspective of my, I have not oh. seen The Prisoner. I'm sorry to say this. Okay, my good. my fine, my, fine. my Magoo and awareness is primarily a Silver Streak, which I know you recently talked about. And, oh, we did. and I, I like Silver Streak. I like him oh. in Silver Streak. Yeah, we like him in Silver Streak, too. Right. And wow. his Columbo episodes, the Columbo episodes that These are, are all good points, points of reference. All great. These are solid points of reference. They are. Uh-huh. Okay. And it's funny yeah. because what? <laughs> Not a good point of reference. Um, um, no, no, no. It's an excellent point of reference, Josh. It's just that Braveheart is the highest profile. Re- I mean, it's that movie is twenty seven years old, but it's still the most recent kind of high profile box office hit, Oscar winning movie that he was was in. Is that? Is that something that comes up when you think of him, or is that just not? So here's the thing. And next time I see one of those prompts on Twitter of what's the most popular Oscar winner you've never seen, I will have to answer with Braveheart. I've never seen Braveheart. Okay. Mm-hmm. At first it was because yeah, like yeah. I, I'm, I was, uh, I think, 11 when that came out. My parents were strict enough about our ratings, and I believe mm-hmm. uh, Braveheart earns its R rating from what I understand and from what I know yeah. of Mel Gibson's yes. filmmaking style since then. Um, yep. Yep. And the whole Mel Gibson part of it is not really a selling point anymore so uh admittedly haven't really felt the urge and on it like 
the, the reason why I mentioned Silver Street, because I was born eight years after that opened, but I was a big Gene Wilder fan as a kid. And my parents said, sure, uh-huh. Silver Streak, it's young Frankenstein on a train. <laughs> it's him and Richard Pryor. And, you know, when you're uh-huh. a little older, yeah. you realize, wow, that blackface yep. scene is uh, that's daring. Yeah. I, I feel there's the I mean, the, <laughs> the blackface, it's it's like super horny for a PG rated movie, which I guess was yeah. just the, the 70s. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, that's the thing. I yeah. haven't seen that in a few years. Uh, I I feel like I saw the blackface scene on YouTube a few years ago. I don't know how guilty I should feel for laughing at it, but I still think that scene is funny. No, I mean, it's a thing, right? It's <sighs> It was certainly the, the movie selling point, as we discussed. And it's just, it just comes, it's, it, it's not, uh, it shouldn't be the thing you pull out of this movie, but it ends up being yeah. the thing you pull out of this movie. You know, I, I don't like it when we get into actual substance before I'm I'm, I'm done with all my, my tedious bits. Can I just ask you, Glenn, what Don Chafee's final feature credit was? Couldn't tell you. You tell me. Really? So uh, you, you never saw the 1979 Hanna-Barbera produced family sci-fi comedy Chomps? Ten-and-a-half-year-old Glenn was not brought no, to see Chomps. Is it an acronym, and, Chris? Of Are course there it is, Glenn. Yes, it's a period okay. piece. There's a period after every single letter. All right, and what what does it stand for, Chris? Uh, do you want to take a stab at it? Uh, capitalistic humanoid. Um, so close. Uh, overbearing. <laughs> um, militant uh, pricks. I don't know. You know, I I can't fault you for being as completely wrong as you are, as I would ordinarily, because it's it's one of those. Bull- it's like Spectre, where it cheats the acronym from the jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, CHOMP stands for Canine Home Protection System. So three mm-hmm. fucking letters are taken up just by home. Yep. That's cheating. That's not, that's yeah, invalid. And you could, yeah. you could do that. You could make them champs because they're, you know, uh, human protection. Right. Protection. I would have guessed monkeys or chimpanzees as one of the letters there. So I would have been off too. So. <laughs> Thomas Cena. Thomasina, what are you thinking now? Thomasina, what makes you so highbrow? For I do think it very odd If you are an Egyptian god That the wee little mouse runs in and out his house Each time you blink or nod Thomasina, though you... Here's the thing you need to know about Thomasina the Cat. Bitch got a theme song. Uh, we have talked about the importance of a good theme song to kind of get you uh, into Bitch got things. a theme song by whom, Glenn? Written by whom? I know the answer to this question. Oh, okay, please, ahead. Josh, please. I was going to bring it up if Kristen, Terry Gilkeson, who went on to write The Bare Necessities, which is, you know, what, top five oh. Disney music right there. Absolutely. And not only that, he also went on just one year later, sometime before he got to The Bare Necessities, his his artistic peak. He wrote the title song for The Three Lives of Romney March. Three lives of the three lives of wow! I just I just made a portmanteau of a McGowan movie, The Scarecrow. Scarecrow. (laughs) Right. Well, you see, you see how I could get confused, Glenn, since the song goes Scarecrow, Scarecrow, about forty times in ninety seconds. So does it does, especially if you see it at the beginning and end of each episode. That's why I thought the song was called Three Lives of Doctor Sin, aka etc. Chomps. So this theme song 
When it started, I was getting kind of brown acid flashbacks to Judy Dench in Cats, uh, <laughs> singing about cats, because she's on that uh, pedestal at the end. I think it might be St. Nelson's Column, uh, uh, Lord Nelson's Column. She's on that pedestal thing, and she's singing to you about cats, about how you should address properly address cats. And it's like, so first on your memory, I'll jog and say, a cat is not a dog. I was getting brown acid flashbacks to that. But hear me out. There are some better than average internal rhymes in this thing. Witness, there are beasties in the garden who would never accept your pardon if you left the jungle yard in which we play. Now, okay, it's not Sweetie, but that slaps. I mean, that that is actually some some songwriting. That's the guy who led to the bare necessities because there, there's some there's some good internal rhyme in that song as well. It's it's like a it's That's a, true. It's his audition for that, although. I believe he wrote. A, well, yeah, I feel like he wrote a lot of songs for the Jungle Book, and only Bare Necessities got used because they went in a different direction. But clearly, Disney was uh, wise to the fact that the Bare Necessities was just too good to pass up. I want to want to take you gentlemen back a little earlier than that, if you'll indulge me. I'm going to read you just from the very first sentence, the very first chapter of the <sighs> source text, Thomasina, the Cat Who Thought She Was a God, by Paul Gallico, published in 1957. All right, are you ready? <clears throat> Mr. Andrew McDewey, again, Mr. Not Doctor, don't know why. Mr. Andrew McDewey, veterinary surgeon, thrust his brick-red bristling beard through the door of the waiting room next to the surgery and looked with cold, hostile eyes upon the people seated there in the plain pine chairs. You know what? I I don't even need to go to the period. Um, I feel like some aspects of the physical description that were given here, cold, hostile eyes, check and check, Uh uh, are accurately rendered in the film and uh, others, um, there, there was some artistic license employed. What do you, what do you guys? I mean, he's not above growing a beard for a part, so he could have if he wanted to, and he did at this point have kind of reddish auburn brick hair, red bristling beard, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I mean he could do it if he wanted to. He just chose not to. Maybe I feel because like... he was in between. Is he the kind of guy who would thrust his beard into a into a room? Yeah, is he a beard thruster? I, I mean, I mean the would... thrusting of the beard and how normal that. If he had a beard, he would thrust it. But I don't know. I, but there's there's part of me that just thinks casting a, a beardless man in this role is like casting five foot seven Tom Cruise as Reacher or three foot nine Henry Cavill as Superman. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, like there's there's certainly a lot of beardy types in the village. This is a time when beard beardiness was uh, looked upon. I think what what they're trying to underscore there visually is that he's a young man who lost his wife early. If if they had given him a beard, that would connote age. And I don't think thematically for this film, they want to do that. They want to make him still be a viable um, sex object. <laughs> Not sure if they succeeded there, but uh, that's, 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 I think the reason for that. That's if I had to guess. Yeah. This is another classic Magoon role in the, in the sense I keep finding these, these commonalities among these, these two guys who apparently quite admired one another. Like if this movie had come out in the year 2000, if this movie had come out at any point between, I'm going to say, 1992 and, uh, oh, I can I can identify the end point very clearly. It's definitely 2006. This part would have been played by Mel Gibson because this guy is a widower who has lost his faith, but he's talking to his priest buddy all the time. Uh, but he'll do anything for his daughter. He's a hard man, but tender on the inside. Like, this is uh, Mel Gibson in Signs, this character. Yeah. This is Swing so. Away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Swing, oh my God. (laughs) So anyway, in this opening, we are getting, and I want to give a shout out to the cinematography here because we're getting lots of cat tracking shots, which have to be 
the most difficult kind of tracking <laughs> shot to do because they have to be low on the ground. They also have to follow, follow a very long dolly track, which means you have to trust the cat to do what it's fucking supposed to do, which is not a trait of cats. Um, the cinematographer here is Paul Beeson, who would go on to be the cameraman in the helicopter in the opening shot of Sound of Music. He's the guy wow. <laughs> who, who somehow found Julie Andrews on that hill, just like he somehow finds this cat <laughs> <laughs> as it's hunting mice and hunting birds. Well, if you can find a cat, you can find Julie Andrews. It's easy. I'm saying, I'm saying. Uh, are there of you cat people? Like, did you grow up with cats? Any, either of you? I mean, I have only ever had a cat, uh, and that was in a, a live-in relationship in in my 20s. And I strongly identify as a dog, dog person, though I've never mm-hmm. never had a dog. But you know, I did I did share a home with Apollo, the the cat, for for four years. Mm-hmm. Josh. Uh, yeah, so I am a hundred percent a cat person. Uh, I have okay. uh, I have a disturbing number of cats. I'm not going to tell you how many cats I have, along with my yeah. children and my oh, wife. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry. You can't you can't throw that out to the universe. Okay. I'm going to say four, four cats. Chris, what's your guess? Oh, six. I, I mean, you know, numbers don't go any higher than six, as we've already established. Yeah, so. We have. And uh, unfortunately for me, Chris is correct. Um, we have six. Oh, cats. wow. Yeah. Wow. Do. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Are there any of them from the same litter? Are they any of them twins or any of them came together, came up two at one time? No. Wow. So, two, well, I, I don't know why I shook my head with the litter. Two of them are brother and sister. Uh, all the others okay. are different. You know, one of them is a... A uh, runaway cat that my wife literally one time called me and said, there's a cat at my school. Can we keep her? And I thought, well, mm-hmm. I could be Patrick McGowan right now and say no, but I didn't mm. do that. So <laughs> Sentimental. It's, it's, it's not, not what's best for the animal. It's what's best for you. That's a perfect accent, Chris. I hope you do it more. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, Glenn has a much better, better McGowan than I, than I do. Here's the thing. Doing Masterpiece Cinema for so long, you notice, I, I noticed themes. You notice themes in certain films. And one of the themes that, you know, it's not hard <laughs> to spot. Boy, Disney hated cats. Walt Disney, not a cat person. <laughs> There is a special feature on the. Uh, did, well, you got this on on DVD from your library, right? I did, but I did not watch the special feature. Oh, okay, because because there is a, it does have Disney's uh, like Walt's introduction, presumably from when this was shown on television, where he's he's there in his office and he's got some cats on his. And he's like, now I'm a dog person, and then one of the cats goes meow, and he's like, oh, don't get me wrong, I like cats too. I'm a dog man. Oh, I like cats. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I've had cats of my own. I like all animals, <laughs> but I must be honest with you, I've always had a special feeling for dogs. But cats are pretty special too, you know. Now, this he one... can't really sell it, and, and I think you've, <laughs> you've landed on something. I mean, he can't sell it, and when you think about, you know, it's not my favorite Disney animated film, but Cinderella, think about the cat that's named after the devil, for example. Sure. <laughs> the theory I put forward not having seen this film before, but the theory I put forward on Masterpiece Cinema was that the films that Disney made, the animated films Disney made, the company, about cats were some of their worst, like the Aristocats, which mm. I loathe, sure. or Oliver and Company, which oh. is just... Oh, yeah. Where, you know, The Lion King is a notable exception because, of course, it's about feline, you know, feline family, but not like domesticated sure, sure. cats, right? 
Big old asterisk there, yeah. Yes, uh, I mean, whereas dogs are always seen as trusty, including literally the dog trusty in Lady and the Tramp. <laughs> yep. It's a clear perception more in the animated films than in the live action ones because it's harder outside of like, you know, a cat yowl sound effect or a shot of a hissing sure. cat to get them to do what you want. This movie, I, I guess I have to say, is better than the Aristocats or Oliver and Company, but I it it's a problem. The way you were describing McGowan in this film is completely accurate to his character. It's a very effective performance, but it's such an effective performance that I felt all the sympathy for him and none for anybody else in the film to the point where I was getting actively angry at the little girl who lost her cat and is heartbroken because I was thinking, (sighs) we're going to come to that. Oh, Josh, thank you, God. Yes, we are totally on board. This, I, I mean, before we, we, we close isn't... out the subject of Walt Disney's hatred of, of cats, all I can contribute to this is that in that introduction, he does identify the author of, of the novel as my friend, Paul Gallico. I don't know if it was, you know, Paul calling up Walt and saying, hey, I've got an idea for, for a movie that's, that's going to allow you to heavily sedate any number of cats. Absolutely. You will get to Absolutely. dump water on them. You will get to throw them. <laughs> For an, an extended dream sequence that that's gonna uh-huh. you know involve a lot of presumably you know non consenting uh, cat. I think I think acrobats. the word you're looking for there is yeah. fling. These yeah. cats were flung across <laughs> the, the camera's eye. Um, yeah, and right, I, so... I mean the first thing I noticed when when we get our and, and there were there were apparently a number of cats. At least uh, according to Susan Hampshire, who who plays Laurie, she says there were a number of cats, not not just one cat. But uh, the the first thing I, in the opening, the title song, the the Terry Gilkerson banger that opens this film. You know, we we do not tolerate body shaming or animal cruelty on this podcast. But this this is a chunky cat, right? This is a brick house cat. Am I wrong? A chunker, a thick. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it gets to eat at the table with the people, like, sitting... Okay. I thought you were <laughs> okay. going to be bringing up... This was my original point. Uh, Josh, would you agree that this cat is manhandled throughout this entire film? <laughs> this child picks up this cat in a way that would have PETA all over this movie. Like, no animals more harmed? Oh, I don't think so. Like, this is not how you handle a, a cat. This cat is... Is is roughed up and it's just being picked up. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again. I'm clearly a cat person, but uh, I the uh-huh. easiest line I draw at, at is no costumes, never, no clothing, none of that. The cover of the DVD, Chris, I'm sure you know it just as well as I do, has Karen Dotris playing the the daughter in the film, holding the cat with the little doily hat, and it's like, no, why, yeah. no, I don't want to yeah. see that, and. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I forget which recent Disney animated film does this, but there's a joke where a little girl has a, it might have been a dog instead of a cat, and like dressed up and how profoundly uncomfortable the animal looks is the joke. The joke isn't, oh, mm-hmm. it's like a cute animal. It's like, no, the animal hates the way you're treating it right now. When, when Gertie and, got her hands on E.T. And, and to oh. Chris's point, these animals were, I mean, come at me, Disney slander lawyers of 1963. These animals were clearly <laughs> drugged. Uh, we're, t- we're getting to a badger that is so logy. It's just something. There is Thorazine involved. I don't know uh-huh. what they're doing to these animals, but like I, 1963 was a different world, a different time. Yeah. 
no cat is this chill. It's just not how, how cats work. In, in anyway. that same featurette, uh, Susan Hampshire talks about after after she got the part, was, was selected by Walt, she said, who was very, very hands-on and involved in, in the most minute details of Disney films of the times. She said she took a bunch of animals home with her, including, I think she actually says a Bambi. She doesn't say a deer. <laughs> I took the part so seriously that when I was preparing for it, I took all these animals back to my little tiny flat in Chelsea. I took back a Bambi, I had three rabbits, a jackdaw, I had mice. Anyway, after about a couple of days, I realised that this wasn't really right, and all the animals went back to their homes. But it, during that time, I did lots of photographs with the animals and got to know the animals very well. And I suppose I sort of became Laurie the Witch. <laughs> realizes uh, that like after a few days that she can't look after all these animals so she's like and i just took them back and released them back into the wild and like omits the uh, you know presumptive like grim coda to this story where like none yep. of them are accepted back into their tribe because they smell like a lady now and are ostracized or or eaten uh, i like the idea that it took yep. her a few days to realize she took, couldn't take care of all these animals it, it wasn't like an immediate oh this was a terrible idea like i'll sleep on it for a yeah. couple of days then it'll be fine <laughs> In my sixth floor walk-up, I couldn't have a Bambi. Who knew? All right. So in, in Veronach 1912, uh, this is where we set our scene, in Veronach, mm -hmm. the fictional town of Inveronach, uh, Thomasina, who can talk, uh, says... That the McDoweys are a happy family is entirely due to me. I made them what they are today, although I had to be murdered first. The story starts when I was murdered, and... Again, yep. I, I perked up. I was like, oh, we're going to Yeah, this it starts noir. just is, like Sunset Boulevard with uh, the guy DOA, floating in the pool. Right? <laughs> it's Sunset Boulevard. It's DOA. It's like Le Chat Noir. I'm here for it. That is writing that this movie cannot cash. This is this. I just can't. I can't. It doesn't meet that that high bar for me. It's not meant to. But man, <laughs> we meet Andrew McDewey. He's a vet. We learn he's a most difficult man. And I'm like, this is Patrick McGowan. Settle <laughs> in. This is what I want from him. This is all I want from him. He lives with Mrs. McKenzie and his daughter, Mary. Uh, Mrs. McKenzie sits at the table with mm -hmm. them when they eat dinner, which is, mm -hmm. I thought, pretty cool. I thought pretty cool of McDewey. Uh, that didn't happen in the It's a Wonderful Life. They sent the maid off to the other room while, while they sat there eating. Um, we meet, uh, for no reason that seems applicable now, but will become important later, we meet Thomas, a blind man, and his guide dog, Bruce. I like naming a dog Bruce. Bruce, yeah. Um, and as Josh, you referred to, the two main kids in this film, Mary and her friend Jordy, are played by the same two kids who would go on to play the Banks children in Mary Poppins. They're, what, four, three years, two years younger than they are in that film, right? Somewhere. Is Mary Poppins 64? Well, so here's the thing. This is what mystified me. Mary Poppins opens August 1964, and this movie was sent into wide release two and a half months earlier. It premiered in December oh, of 63, wow. but wide release was June of 64, and it just feels like this is like a <laughs> run-up to, aren't they cute? Enjoy them being cute in another movie with no animals. Animated ones, no real ones. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're not particularly cute in this movie. Because the kid, I don't want to, look, I don't want to... She's creepy. Body. She's creepy. No. She's creepy. creepy. I'm talking about Jordy. I okay. don't want to body shame a toddler, but he has bags under his eyes, <laughs> like steamer trunks. I mean, like that. Like he. I'm just saying he's not getting enough rest. This kid uh, is is he's being put under too much pressure. Something's wrong there. If I may, it, you got to rewatch Mary not. Poppins soon. Mm -hmm. By the way, because uh, he looks the exact same. He still has those bags under his eyes. You're Does not he? wrong. 
very distracting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the, in the same way that John Hurt looked like he was like a real tough 47 for about 50 years, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- that child was a high mileage eight from birth until death. So we cut to uh, the vet's waiting room where a customer is talking to another customer about he looks down his nose at book learning and at science. And I'm like, oh, that's going to go well for me. This is not, I'm not going to like this movie. Uh, the kindest thing I better have him put to sleep. Oh, no. Uh, now you can see how bad he is with the asthma. The poor dog can hardly breathe. He's in pain, Mrs. Lagan. But you can't put Robbie to sleep, Mr. McDewey. I wouldn't have come. He's all I have in the world. Couldn't you give him a wee bit of medicine to tide him over till he's well again? Mrs. Lagan, there is no medicine that can make him well. He's very old, he's in great pain, and his life is a misery to him, can't you see? But I can't lose him. What would I do without him? Poor Rabbi. Be fair now, it's yourself you're pitying, Mrs. Lagan, not the dog. Oh, dear. Uh, So Dr. McGooey, McDewey, wants to off this old lady's pup. Uh, he convinces her to do it, and it's not really a pup. It's like 15, 16 years old. No. Uh, the knowledge of this causes a stampede from the waiting room, and uh, at the same time, this kid, Jordy, brings in a frog, but McDewey is very quick to rebuff him and say, I'm not going to fix your fucking frog, <laughs> weirdo. Um, and then we learn that the talk of the town is that Patty McDewey is only good with farm beasts. He doesn't care about people's pets. Um, and I think the movie's being slightly disingenuous here because, I mean, I'm Team McDewey. If your pet is suffering, kill your pet. That yeah. is it. He's absolutely right that she only wants to keep the dog around for herself. She doesn't really care about him. Uh, and yet this movie is set up to be like, he needs to learn a lesson about compassion and love. It's like, no, he, he doesn't need to learn that lesson. He needs to be a good fucking doctor and teach these people what they need to fucking do with their pets. Any comments on this scene? He's the one who has the right amount of compassion at the start because what he's doing, he's exactly. doing out of mercy, right. right? Again, I don't have the book in front of me like Chris does, but I, I would Ooh. be fascinated to know if the book is also set in 1912 because some of the reactions feel a little bit more modern to the 60s than how people might have reacted back in the 1910s and it's one of those things where i think did this need to be set back then in terms of the progress of science and what veterinary science actually enabled a doctor to do back in the 1910s because Mm -hmm. it feels he's being set up for failure slash learning a valuable lesson quote unquote (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. it's the same year as the the music man i think i I just saw the music man so it's on my my mind which what is it's out of 1910 or something like that i think it's 1912 okay uh so jordy and his friends decide they're going to take this fucking frog to the witch woman living in the glen and yeah. I was like, again, this 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 movie hoodwinked me so many times, Josh. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay, bring on Robert Eggers. Bring on the Vavitch. I want I want the witch woman living in the Glen to be awesome and scary nope. and creepy. Nope, nope, nope. There's there is no Helena Bonham Carter in this film, Glenn. There Sorry. is nothing. There is instead a, a sexy, improbably well coiffed, uh, <sighs> wasp waisted blonde who treats the animals like she's Sleeping Beauty or Snow White. They just come to her. And uh, she leans into it, though. What I like about her in the beginning is that she leans into the to the label of witch. Uh, she claims it kind of defiantly. So if she, if anything, she is kind of 
queering the space, right? She's queering mm. the village. She is saying, I'm going to take this thing that you throw upon me and claim it. That is my agency. That's what I choose to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that she's a, it's, it's a clever idea, but that said, and again, I, I say this having been through the 60s, 70s era trenches of Disney live action filmmaking, uh, I, I would not have gone into this thinking, Robert Eggers, we're bringing on the crazy <laughs> shit here. Like, no, I, <laughs> yeah, I, know, I, I, know. I, I know. I listen, that would have been great. And and I mean, uh, there were a lot of weird touches in a lot of these movies, but that was like, that was one of those things where it's like it, it tiptoes towards something weird before becoming much more traditional Disney conservative family values. Yeah, and and I and I can say this with authority because I <clears throat> I bought the book Thomasina and I and I have definitely looked at the cover several times. Um, I, I feel <laughs> like that's that's an element of the the novel that might have been softened. She might be a little weirder. She might she might not be putting it all on for the benefit of these children who are spying on the the bushes. Then you know, smash cut to her in a wedding dress walking out of the chapel <laughs> with McDewey, which is which is not the the transgressive. It's all of her Treatment agency. Of this the last scene is of her is sitting at a dinner table, uh, decorously eating her dinner with the family. Like I mean, all of her agency, all of her independence gone out the window, and she has an even tighter bun. Anyway, back at Patty McGee's, he's getting into it with his friend the vicar. Pleased he is. You think more of his affection and gratitude for you than you do of his health. All you people with pets are the same. That's why he's too fat, poor brute. Brute, he calls you Finn. Oh. That's part of the reason why folks here are slow to accept your doctrine, Andrew. You show no feeling for the sick animals you treat. The animals they love. Are sentimental about you, mean, to the point of not knowing what's best for them. Like you and uh, Mrs. Lagan, who is here just now. You're saying your brusque, unfeeling nature is making you unpopular. He doesn't care over much because he fucking shouldn't because he's a man of science. We learn that the rap on the witch woman in the woods is that she's queer in the head. Just putting it out there. I didn't say it. The movie said it. Uh. Um... And over dinner, Mary talk young little Mary talks about the witch. Uh, and Mary, long before you know, in Act Two, she's going to get all. I killed you, Daddy. I put you in a box. Oof, Here, oof. she is just. And Josh, you alluded to this. She's a very tough child to like, much less love. She is manipulative as fuck. She is yeah. wheedling promises out of people left and right. Like you promise, you promise you'll do this for me. You promise. Don't dig her. Hate her. Kind of, kind of hate this. Kind of hate this. She definitely knows that she outranks their their maid, their their domestic, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. she's called. That that was that got me like aligned against her fully as soon as she pulled that. Do you, do you promise you'd do anything for her? Don't like uh, Mary. Once she goes to bed, uh, uh, Pat, Patty McGee kisses her on the forehead, which is, I think, the only moment of male female affection that yeah I've seen him express. Like, does he kiss anybody in that? Um, in the thing where he's a spy, like in the the, the television movie we talked we saw that one time, Karoshi. No, the television movie, the the Irish television movie. Oh, he, uh, uh, the hard way. The hard way. He doesn't kiss her, there, no. right? Because they're divorced. No. It's like this seems to be. No, he just like three. sends her money. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Thomasina, the cat, tells us that she spends every Wednesday night outside because it's market day, and she tries to steal some fish. Um, and I need you both guys to weigh in here because I was checking my phone at this time. She goes out to market day. She gets chased by some dogs. Do we see the moment she gets cut by something or hurt by something to give her tetanus? Or is that all done? We just see her being chased by dogs and then we cut. She, well, she, she leaps up on top of a, a stack of crates and they fall down and we hear a meow. 
And that that uh, is there okay. more, Josh? I don't I don't recall seeing any any more explicit injury than that. No, the details you're you're describing line up with my recollection as well. Although I will admit that that was also where I was going to look at my phone just a little bit <laughs> my attention yeah. was already flagging. <laughs> That sequence was was clearly uh, inspired the dog parkour uh, set piece in John Wick Chapter Three with the uh, uh-huh. Belgian Malinois that uh, Holly Berry has that are like part of her her whole gun fu uh-huh. regimen. But the way the way Thomasina or which, whichever version of Thomasina it was leapt up that that stack of crates cat like I would say cat like really really impressive cat like reflexes. The next morning. Mary worries that Thomasina is lost and goes looking for her, uh, along with her friends. Uh, and they together find a what they call a terribly stiff Thomasina. And there is some not particularly convincing taxidermy prop work here as they kind of shove <laughs> into each other's hand the, the terribly stiff Thomasina. Yeah. Uh, it was like like the the baby in American Sniper. It's totally the baby in American Sniper. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Thomas's dog Bruce gets run over by a roadster, and we're supposed to hate the guy who who drives the car just by his mustache. His mustache radiates. Not a good guy. Although he does stop and goes to the vet, so like it's tough to kind of get yeah, beyond this yeah. guy. Uh, at, back at the vet, we get some very tense, sweaty dog saving action. You know. Cut, 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 like the towel, scalpel, suture. Um, it's a lot of, a lot of tension comes. about the fate of Bruce. There's a lot of, lot of concern. A lot of concern. A lot of, lot of Bruce uh, concern. He's let the E Street Band go. He's going to record Human Touch and Lucky Town using okay, session musicians. Okay, okay. People are alarmed. So then Mary, the picture of entitlement, just barges in with her fucking cat. Daddy, it's Thomasina. She's hurt. Go away, child. Please, look at her. She's awful sick. Here, Willie, take this cat. Daddy, Daddy, please look at her. Please make her well. Mary, you mustn't stay here. Now listen to me. I've got blind Thomas's dog here. He's badly hurt. Well, so is Thomasina. Mary! If you only look at... (laughs) Save him, Daddy. Save him. (laughs) But there is a animal in distress and she doesn't have there's jerk it's it's a blind <laughs> man's um, dog by the way it's not just <laughs> an animal it's a dog that serves a clear need for another human right. being to the community serves a purpose except for your fucking little cat that you dress up in doll clothes Oy. anyway yeah he's not a therapy dog which i'm which i'm sure is a, a phrase that mr mcdewey would have no use for he's he's an actual oh. service dog an actual service dog. There's a difference between being therapy and service. Anyway, awfully quick uh, lockjaw onset here because usually it's supposed to take like days or weeks, but no, this cat is instantly stiff. Um, and there's nothing to be done. He does save the dog. He does not save the cat. Uh, and again, as you mentioned, Josh, I am totally Team McDewey here because he's contributing to society. He's performing a service. The cat is just arrogant as fuck. Like, I am not being treated sufficiently well which i think is a larger theme in the book because the name of the book is the cat who thought it was a thought she was a guy yes yeah okay so what is the name of uh, mcdewey's assistant (sighs) the older man who he like he hands thomasine off to this guy and says like take care of it (laughs) yep 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 yep. and the cloth she's laying on that cat has tetanus get her out of here deal with her disinfect her hands and hurry back but sir mr mcdewey you promised the child the cat is beyond help will you do as i tell you Take the gun, leave the cannoli. I, I, and of course, I, I'm wondering how he took care of it, since the actual method of extermination is not specified. It just raises question because is this a fantasy or is it not? Yeah, we see like inside the cat's head where they think the cat thinks it goes to another life, but we don't know 
that. The cat could just have hallucinated this whole thing. The cat could be like, uh, that kid is like, God is not dead. Like, maybe we don't know. Maybe this cat is just a bunko artist. We have no idea. Well, that um, also gets to something. And I know we might talk about this broader throughout the discussion here. I feel like um, all the stuff with Thomasina as narrator is so useless. It doesn't connect to anything. It does not connect. At some point, I was thinking to myself, you know, none of these characters realize this cat has inner thoughts. Uh, really, uh-huh. none of them have any full awareness of what's happening. And like 90% of the movie, Thomasine is like a background character. And uh-huh. so all the rest of it is like, yeah. why, why is there narration? Again, I'm sure in the book, Thomasina narrates the book, I guess. But it just uh-huh. felt complete. Like, it, it's so half-formed. An idea that doesn't no. go anywhere like the other things we've been talking about, you know. You think it's going to come into fruition when she meets another cat at uh, Lori's place. And like, oh, now we're going to have like a little, you know cat's gonna talk to each other and hook up mm. and like nope 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 she's the only talking animal here all the rest are dumb beasts uh, anyway um then there's a scene where uh patty mcgee must explain to mary about her cat and mary is just awfully slow on the uptake and the scene takes way too long than it needs to and then we get again you promised you promised you promised and i daddy thomasina is she better she's out of pain mary my note here is why is this entertaining? <laughs> because I don't want to see this. This is not like I don't, anyway. Listen, uh, listen to me just a minute. You see, that there are some things that you you have to learn to face, even if at first they seem a bit unfair. Where is she? Thomasina's wound was poisoned, and she might have made other people's pets ill, even die. But you did save her. I couldn't, Mary. I couldn't. See, there are some things your daddy can do and some things that he can't. I actually thought for this guy who we're used to seeing as as being so cold, so he he was his version of tender, trying to tell Mary what, what happened to her cat. He doesn't lie to her, but he does lower his voice. He takes a pause. He doesn't tell her, oh, we, we sent Thomasina away to... Uh, you know, the farm or whatever the euphemism is. He's running yeah. around with all the other animals. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So it's a low, it's a low goddamn bar, Chris. That's a very low bar. It's <laughs> almost imperceptibly low, but I found myself kind of leaning in in that moment slightly because it was, it seemed like a, like a fresh move from McGowan. At this, at this stage in our project, Glenn, I'm not expecting a lot of facets of him that I haven't seen before. And, and that sure. was not one that I could recall having seen. But then immediately, as soon as she's out of the room, as soon as Mary's out of the room, he turns to Mrs. McKenzie and says, burn what your cat <laughs> I enjoyed, I enjoyed very much because that seemed like, here we are, we're back. Uh-huh. But McKenzie, yes. you know, bless, um, she's pushing against him because she's a, a, a creature of faith or whatever the fuck. And she's like, could you not have saved the cat? Uh, take everything she was wearing when she found the cat. Everything, do you hear? Burn what you can't boil. I didn't realize she was going to take it so hard. Could you not have saved the cat? It was wounded, infected with tetanus. I did what was right. And I just wanted him to go like, tetanus. No, I could not have saved <laughs> the cat. <laughs> anyway, its wound was um, poison. Why did she take it so hard? For a clever man, you have an awful lot to learn. The best people, and tell me what you think of this, the best people in this film are Mary's friends, uh, her little friends, because they are awfully understanding in a way that, I don't know, I wouldn't be, but they they are 
all on her side. They're they're very sorry for her. They say they're going to stage a funeral, and then and I think that's what you respond to is that the the guy who's all uh, like he's he's stage managing the the funeral. I did like the gag about the the girl who wants to be chief mourner. I thought that was funny. Okay, um, uh, they say. <laughs> They say, as we'll take her, take her through the town, and they'll say, there goes the Widow McDewey, which again, <laughs> queering the space. I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> that is it's a different kind of sexuality. Um, this is when we get the uh, Thomasina's near-death experience montage. Uh, the dream ballet. Dream ballet. This is totally the dream ballet, Chris, where she is... Flying across some poor grip is just flinging this cat across the camera's field of vision. And she says all this. Flying, flying wildly without weight or effort, diving, spinning. I was diving, I was spinning, and it's like, nope, you are plummeting, is what you're doing. Uh, And, you know, I mean, this is Leonard Malton famously really loved this film and said it was a hidden gem and said that this was the highlight of this moment here this montage is one of the things he loved most about it it's the highlight of pure fantasy wow did you look this up in malton's video guide glenn and what uh-huh. what edition what 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 year i don't i can't remember it's one of the ones where's that thing what i will give him is this is psychedelia like four or five years before it became a thing in yeah. movies like this is this is the predates 2001 by half a damn decade even though yep. in that corner of pinewood kubrick is there just you know shooting like ultra slow speed film of like mixing different dyes and gels together and stuff and then over in this corner they're they're throwing a goddamn cat against the wall and you know <laughs> shooting it in 12 frames a second or, or whatever see and my thing was I, I it's definitely the high point of the film because it's the only part of the movie that looks and feels so different but i was thinking mm-hmm. of a movie from earlier now outside of disney Two of my favorite filmmakers are Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And I could not help but think watching the cat up the stairway of A Matter of Life and Death, which is one of my all-time favorite films. If you have not seen A Matter of Mm -hmm. Life and Death, you must. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, a a very, not hallucinatory film, but a film that is very much about life. Do you think that the, the... Among the the Marvel movies, which are of course are sub Disney now, Captain America: The First Avenger, first one is one of my favorites. I love it. I think there's a, a purity to it that has gotten lost as the films have gotten busier, more more sophisticated. The conversation, you know, when he's going to crash the plane into the ice and he's talking to Haley Atwell on the, is that an intentional homage to a, to a matter of life and death? I think it is. Oh, it definitely is. Good resolved. Listen, hey, I, I also like Captain America, the first Avenger, because, of course, it is directed by Joe Johnston, who directed one of the greatest yes. Disney films of all time, The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer. Good. I, I was so afraid you were going to say, honey, I shrunk the kids. <laughs> and if you'd said, honey, I shrunk the kids, I was going to lift the plastic cover on this giant red button on my desk, Josh, <laughs> which I've never taken the cover off of before. And I pray I, I will never need to. But uh, no, The Rocketeer is an admirable, admirable selection. Rocketeer is one of my favorite films of all time. But so is so is A Matter of Life yeah. and Death. And I was very, I, mm-hmm. I was wondering to myself if that was an intentional illusion here because the, the shot of the cat walking up, not being flung, like <laughs> walking up the stairs. You've got the statues mm-hmm. of the Sphinx cats lining the staircase. Uh, that felt mm-hmm. very yes. deliberate to me. And again, we have to, 
it's the director, the cinematographer. That cat is walking up the dead center of those stairs. Cats wouldn't normally do that. They would hug one side or the other. But that's, and, and it is tracking that cat all the way up those stairs. So there is a dolly. There is like something in... That is just... It's, it's remarkable. And then, once it gets up to the top of the stairs, the whole thing takes kind of a Sandman twist because we're in the Temple of Bast. Bast, the cat goddess. The goddess with the golden eyes, staring and staring, drawing me upward and upward. With all of Thomasina's and ancestors, and, and they're, all, they're all, there's a golden statue, there's a shit ton of Siamese cats, and I, I didn't get it. Why? But apparently the lore of the book is, after you get your nine lives, you become a Siamese cat and you go to the Temple of Bast. Like, oh, they, you become a Siamese cat. Like, that, that's your end, that's the end run, is... Siamese, like I think that's that. Well, I wish that any of that was in the movie, by the way, because that would have been yeah, weird, yeah, yeah, yeah. but fun. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. It's it's tough for the movie to recover from such a such a visually lush sequence like that. It comes a third of the way through, and then we we never get anything like that. Again. You are two uh, heterosexual gentlemen, so you will not get this reference. But in the nineteen thirty nine film, the women. It's it's black and white. I've it's seen it, Glenn. Lots, lots of people, lots of people being like catty to each other. Then the film stops dead for this trippy uh, fashion show that's in full color, and then the movie goes on. <laughs> this is what it kind of reminded me of. It's all like this. This is dropped down into the center of the thing, like a Monty Python foot, and then we go on. <laughs> just, there's no real reason. Anyway, she's back. Uh, she's in a funeral procession. We see the funeral procession pass by. We learn, importantly, that the town is split on the question of McDewey, on the question of Paddy McVie. Some people are for him. Some people are against him. This is a crack that a few well-placed words later on can exploit. Um, this funeral procession, as it goes up into the hills, turns into a Lord of the, hills, Lord of the Rings walking scene. And then this is what you were referring to earlier, Chris, where we get some fun because the kids are trying to ape what a funeral is. Um, and... Uh, there's a designated mourner and there's a whole thing. This is where we say our, our serious words. And then the Witch of the Glen shows up and she joins in the chorus and the kids scatter. And then she goes to the cairn and finds that the cat is still alive. So this is where the fantasy thing comes in, right? Because the cat has tetanus. It was killed by the vet's assistant. And now like, this is what we're just supposed to go like, Sure. Yeah, the the vet's assistant. Maybe maybe he just let her go. Maybe he didn't have the heart to like wring her neck or whatever he was supposed to do out in the alley behind the behind the surgery. But of course, even to the point of fantasy, it's okay if the vet's assistant wanted to be nice and not kill the cat. Still has tetanus. Still has tetanus. Still has tetanus. Tetanus is not a thing. You just he said, and then later on he says destroyed. Destroyed, yep. right? Right. So presumably that yep. that means the the corpse is still potentially infectious. So we can't let the kids take it and push it up the hill in a wheelbarrow or whatever the fuck. I'm I'm just not connecting all these dots here. Yeah, I mean this is the thing. Like tetanus is not like the common cold. It's not like the common tetanus. Oh, just get some bed rest, <laughs> hydrate. So uh, tetanus. That night at dinner gives her father the silent treatment, but it's not the silent treatment. It's better than the silent treatment because she's like, she makes a pronouncement. Your father angry. No, I haven't. My father's dead. My father's dead. <laughs> she is fucking Danny from, from The Shining. That, that this child, is it. This but... is my point, guys. It's like, if it was, it's got, 
you got witches, you got creepy <laughs> children, you got pagan gods. This should be a much more fun movie than it is. <laughs> it has, it wants to be a much more fun movie than it is, but it's not there yet. It just needs to be pushed a little. Uh, then she's in bed later on that night, and she is singing exactly the kind of song that you can imagine kind of rising up out of a darkened basement <laughs> where the children's swing slowly goes back and forth. It's one of those creepy child sing-song things. Bright on the blue <laughs> And um, then Patty McGee goes in, tries to wheedle and control, but... Again, for, for several seconds... Gives well, it yeah, a real. He's, he's got no game, Chris. Yeah. Of course, it would never work. You could give him another. You could give him five minutes of screen time. It would never work. Look, Mary. I'm sorry about Thomasina. I've told you. Get you another cat, or maybe a wee dog, to be all your very own. Wouldn't you like that? Um. Now is when we learn about the town's attitude toward Paddy McGee. He say they say he's a townsman, not a Highlander. Um, uh huh. Yep. Because of course he's not. Because because you know why, Chris? They could be only one. Uh, he's too quick to slaughter herds because of foot and mouth disease. It, it's, it's, it's he's not too quick to slaughter. He slaughters herds because of foot and mouth disease. Like I. Uh, anyway, um, this is when Thomas and his friends start that whisper campaign against him. They turn the town against him. These people seem to have no experience of children. Like they're just incredibly yep. credulous about uh, what 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 children <laughs> yeah. report to them. Oh, you know what I heard? Yeah, exactly. he took out his gun and he shot the, the the dog in the middle of his crowded veterinary office. Like these, I these people need to be a little more. This one time it's more savvy. The vicar yeah. uh, suggests <laughs> yeah. that yeah. there it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, suggests that Patty, uh, Patty McGee, might be jealous of Mary's love for Thomasina, which <laughs> is an Oedipal psychological subtext that I did not associate uh-huh. with films of this time. But maybe I should have. I don't know. Maybe that was unkind of me. This is the same year as Marnie. That's true. Uh, which is uh, pretty intense in, in that way. Back at home, Mary is sitting on the stairs, staring off catatonically into the distance. The vicar comes to visit, and she is she dials up the creepy. Uh, and this is not like Regan versus Father Cat. <laughs> this is not your mother sucks cocks in hell level. But... It's not not. <laughs> it's Hello. adjacent. I was saying to your daddy just this morning. That... My daddy's dead. I killed him. My daddy's dead. I killed him. I put him in a box with flowers in it. I took him up to the glen and buried him. I put him in a box with flowers in it. We all took him up into the glen and had a funeral. Now I haven't anybody at all. Mary. No! I like being alone! I like being alone. Again, <laughs> there's this movie, and there's the movie this could be. Yeah. And they just seem, they seem to be reaching for each other across a great expanse. So this actually, to me, is, is uh, that's a little more frightening than your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a thing for you and your therapist to explore, Chris. Patty goes to visit a farmer who says, um, times have changed. Well, maybe they're changing back. <laughs> Just like, like Bob Roberts said, yes. It's totally like, it makes Scotland great again. <laughs> you know, this is like, again, I wrote here, how is this fun? I don't <laughs> want this. Um, 
But it turns out the Whisper wait, wait, wait. campaign is a remarkable. Is this not the one where he talked about the warrior poets? About how they felt like warrior? No, that was a different <laughs> that's, movie. That's a little we, bit later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so now all of a sudden, the, the townsfolk of the village are sending their sick animals to the witch in the game. <laughs> Yeah, she does um, her own research, but she's really good. She, she she does her own research. She's given them ivermectin. You never know. Um, so uh, so the vicar and Patty discuss Laurie, and they're like, uh, Patty's all, you should trust science and experts. And the vicar's all, well, some people have natural gifts. Uh, why are we so quick to dismiss? Um, it just gets more and more depressing with this scene. I couldn't, I had to, I had to take a breather. Back at uh, the Witch in the Glen's house, or Croft, as this film makes clear, which is tomorrow's wordle, Croft, C-R-O-F-T, okay. uh, Thomasina is getting better, uh, though everyone just keeps picking up and <laughs> putting down this cat all over the damn place <laughs> without any kind of, like, it's just, uh, Thomasina says Laurie is gentle and kind, but she doesn't have a memory of her former life. She also says that she's not getting the kind of attention she wanted. She's being treated like everyone else. Why is this? Why are we supposed to sympathize with this? Like, again, in the book, she thinks she's God, but there's no through line here. It's just her being fucking arrogant. It's just her yeah. being really annoying. That needs to be introduced. That needs to be set up. She's like the the dog that Jeff Goldblum played in Isle of Dogs, but uh, that character was properly established because Isle of Dogs is a, a good movie. Okay. This is where the idea of Thomasina not being a character is the problem where it's like, oh, she lost her memory. Absolutely. Like who, who nobody else knows what? that you have a memory, <laughs> that you have a memory associated yeah. with one person. You're just a cat. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, this is the scene where she meets other cats and the one cat comes up to her and they kind of rub noses and you're like, so yeah, what's your deal, sir? And she, nothing, nothing, nothing <laughs> happens here. Um, the three lads are out in the wood. They find a badger in a trap. And it's not like they find a badger in a trap. They kind of set the trap for the badger, right? Am I clear about that? Like, that's their fucking trap, right? Yeah, they are both arsonist and firemen. <laughs> they might have that backwards. Richard Jewell. Not Richard Jewell. That's not what happened with him. Anyway, they take it to the witch. Um, and as they take it to the witch, they are observed by Thomasina. And then, as while they are watching and Thomasina is watching, Paddy McGee, in his suit and tie and vest, uh, Kind of comes upon Laura, att Laurie attempting to tend to the badger, um, and he just no. I mean, he does right. what you would do. He says, "Oh, excuse me, pardon me." That uh, no, sorry. Of He's course, of course. You yeah. seem to know what you're doing, <laughs> witch in the glen, who is uh, has a great way with animals. No, he goes in and says, "It could rip your throat out," and <laughs> she immediately defers to him, which I do not love. She sees him showing up as a gift from God. Uh, he wants to put it out of its misery. It invites himself into her home. Invites himself into her home. Unlike he a vampire, to, he he does not need to be invited. To. He he know he notices that this poor animal's you know animal has been trapped by punk kids, and uh, she, but she wants him to save his life, and uh, he performs some emergency badger surgery, <laughs> bad bad badgerjury, bad nice. badgery. That's it. Badgerectomy. That's right. Well, that would yeah. mean he yeah, removes yeah. the badger from the badger. <laughs> the trap. He removes the badger. I don't know. He does remove the badger from the trap. When we get to the David Lowry or, I don't know, late Cronenberg remake, it's, it's all going to happen. We're going to see it. Oh, yeah. We're going to totally Splice. Yep. And before Paddy McGee leaves, we see him attempt to flirt with her. And uh, it is not his natural state. And it made me uncomfortable. You know, um, 
In, uh, in Inveranak, they, uh, they call you witch. And if you can get all these creatures here to live together in peace, perhaps there's some truth in it. I, I was not prepared for it. He was. This is him being charming? And he's not being charming. Uh, Thomasina then sees Patty, but she doesn't remember him for reasons that we don't understand. And then Lori uh, gives him a purple scarf. The kids go in to check on their badger. They peek in the window. The youngest... Uh, uh, Baggy eyes, Jordy uh, puts his foot through a crate. Do you you remember in Akira? You remember how like the psychic kids who who have those wizened old oh, yeah. faces as a the, kid. The, yeah, yes, that's it. He looked like that. He looked like yeah, the little the little like psychic that. boy in Akira. She chases after him and says, as a pickup line, "Do you want to see a frog?" Uh, and then Jordy uh, sees the badger and that the frog's okay. He takes his frog back. This changes their attitude towards Laurie, which will become important later. This is. Just uh, ace plotting. <laughs> That's what this movie is. It's all about just that. Everything that's set up, it gets put down. Uh, this is the scene, Chris, that you mentioned earlier, where Patty brings the puppy into Mary. Mary is not having it. Um, so he, uh, he takes the puppy back and he kills it. He puts it out of his misery. Yep. <laughs> it's what's best it's for the camera, He bites it's, its head off. It's the weirdest yeah. thing. <laughs> it's like, um, it was already four months old. I was doing it to kindness. I'm doing it to kindness. (laughs) There is this, in my head, bullshit conversation between him and the vicar about how he's a man of science. So because of that, he's somehow limited. And uh, we learn, oh, no, he's talking to Laurie here. And he says that he never wanted to be a vet and he lost his faith. And then this is is the Mel Gibson of it all. Uh, And again, this is where we get the drug badger. Anyway, for some reason, uh, at this point... And again, I'm sure it's clear in the book, but here, for some reason, unexplained, Thomasina just remembers something about her home and heads back to town. She goes to Mary's window. There's a whole Heathcliff, Kathy thing. Um, And then Thomasina bolts. So it's not like she went back to be back with Mary. She just goes there to lure Mary out into the rain. Yeah. (laughs) And... uh, Classic move. Uh, Mary chases Thomasina through the streets of town. Patty uh, chases after Mary, barking at her in a way that yep. would not attract her. <laughs> Mary, Mary. Um, and I'm convinced that the when he finds her, because I mean she just fell over and passed out because I don't know cold I, or something. I I don't know, but um, don't know why. But she is yeah. lying in the street for no reason, and then perhaps the the producers of this film were a little more reluctant to. Um, endanger a child than than a cat but I'm, I'm convinced that that's an adult woman who he finds on the street and, and it's a much bigger it's a much bigger yeah. person it's <laughs> a totally much bigger it is a giant person uh but she is lying in the street she's got pneumonia or she probably does the vicar tells patty at this point to humble himself before god so at this point guys i'm i'm where i don't know how many minutes in this film and i'm thinking okay this cat has to die again because i didn't expect it to go metaphorical i thought okay it had the one life and this is its second life there has there's going to be a time when this film when this cat has to die again but no uh thomasina goes back to lori everything reverts to zero and then the next day (laughs) strap in a circus comes to town that is run by a collection of lazy stereotypes who, 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 who treat the circus animals really cruelly. And here's the thing about making a film about people treating circus animals cruelly in 1963. That means you have to get your actors to treat the animals cruelly. 
you can't do it with CGI. And uh, the G word gets tossed around like just willy nilly, predictably. And then the kids. Yeah, which uh, I, and I thought of that. Was it in um, Many Happy Returns? Was that the mm-hmm. prisoner episode where the one of the various colonels uses that word and number six quietly it corrects him? Corrects him yeah. to Romani. Yep. Uh, the kids run afoul of the circus kids and run to the constable in town to report animal cruelty. Uh, the constable says, well, they're awful people. I've already told them to leave. And it turns out that Patty McGee is the <laughs> I've done all I can. My hands are tied. Them. Yep. But Patty McGee does not seem receptive. And also when these kids who have, uh, <laughs> who have, uh, mounted a pitch campaign against him, he's kind of a bit passive aggressive to them when they come to his door, which again, no jury in the world. These kids are awful. <laughs> and, and he is just giving them a taste of their own medicine. So when he's not responsive, they decide to go snitch to the witch. Um, and Jordy um, is the guy who goes in to meet her because the other two kids are too sh- chicken shit to do it. And he gives her something, a wooden device of some kind. Did either of you clock what this was? I didn't understand what he was giving to her. She said it was lovely. I don't know what it was. I don't remember what it was, but this this triggered a, a powerful memory for me of uh, the, there is a, a man who used to be married to my mom's sister. They've been divorced for a long time, and he you know he kind of has a like a shitty reputation in our family to the point that my dad has actually gone back and edited him out of photos as a okay. as a way of wow. uh, teaching himself Photoshop. Wow! But he was a he was a carpenter by trade. He was a, a builder. He was a, a skilled craftsman. And I like desperate for a holiday gift to give him one year. I gave him this coat rack that I had made in shop class that I knew was a piece of shit. Like it mm-hmm. was, and I mean this wasn't an aggressive thing. I just didn't have a, a gift for him. And it's like I'm going to give him this fucking coat rack that even like. 11 year old me knew was just looked like shit. It was all asymmetrical. (laughs) Like no one would ever, would ever put this on their wall. And I guess to his eternal credit, this professional carpenter, he pretended to like it. So uh, I blacked out for uh, an indeterminate period of time, (laughs) revisiting this, this powerful memory (laughs) when that happened. Again, between you and your therapist. Uh, So Laurie says she's going to check out the circus. Uh, Cut to Mary, who's not doing well. She's lost the will to live, we've, we hear. So she is totally Padme Amidaling, uh it right there in the bed. Um, Patty uh, gets the idea to fetch Laurie and get her to administer to Mary because she's got a natural gift of compassion <laughs> and mercy and faith and love and whatever the fuck. It's like, oh, science can only go so far. You know, the, the cover of the DVD mm-hmm. promises a lesson about the power of love and... Um... <laughs> Um, Just because when, Huey Lewis ain't singing it doesn't mean it ain't true. <laughs> when he goes to see her, she's lost. He's he's lost and frightened. We, he, he is doing here, Chris, back me up. He, he's evincing the kind of vulnerability he only evinces like in the very early days of The Prisoner, like when he is clearly overmatched. Um, and, you know, yeah, nice to see that. I'm up here looking for you. Just like the other strays and the lost that come to you. Why? My daughter's sick with pneumonia. I need your help. I want you to come to her with me. To your house? Please come. He doesn't do this much in Danger Man. He doesn't do this much in pretty much anything else. He certainly doesn't do it in Scarecrow or Romney Marsh, where he's always, like, you know, supercilious. Here, he's... She's vulnerable. Yeah. He's a, he's a good actor when, when, he, when he wants. When he needs to be. But in, in doing what I did, I... 
I betrayed her trust in me. I, I killed something in her. Laurie, you prayed yourself once, didn't you? And you said that my coming here could be the answer to the prayer. Aye, it was. Well, I prayed too. And your coming with me now could be the answer to that. For me. For Mary. So she's gone to the circus to check on the animals, and um, this is when we realize that the very kids who have reported this circus for animal cruelty are right there in the stands, just like, yay! <laughs> just, these fucking hypocritical little fuckers are just like, yay, yay, yay! Oh, beat that bear! Whip that horse! It's like, oh, hey, these kids. I really felt um, for the bear. Yep. She confronts the circus folk. Uh, and then they physically assault her and make her dance like a bear. Yeah, like that scene was um, a little frightening. I know this isn't going to go on for very long because I, I, I know I'm watching a Disney movie. But I mean, this cow, whole scene but... this the, then erupts into fisticuffs, which I would have thought, and Josh, you can speak to this better, like Disney films at this time, I always think of them as just kind of sanitized and treacly. And the fact that <laughs> you're... Throwing, you're cracking a whip at a woman, and then you're, there's a whole Dunnybrook. <laughs> there's a whole thing. I mean, we are fully in the 1947 Nightmare Alley for for a few minutes near the near That's the end true. of the film. That's true. Which was just on the Criterion Channel, so I was able yeah, to, so, to watch yeah, it. And it's yeah. and yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there there are some 60s era Disney films that lean a lot hard, maybe not into the violent side of things. For some reason, the animal cruelty is making me think of the 1967 Disney film, The Happiest Millionaire which is on Disney+. Plus. It stars Fred McMurray, Greer Garson from Mrs. Miniver, mm-hmm. plays his wife, and mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. one of the most demented attempts at doing what Mary Poppins did, but A, without kids, mm-hmm. and B, without animation. It's uh, inspired by a real guy, and he is a crazy old rich man and the, the animal cruelty part I'm thinking about is that he has like a lot of alligators in this house and there's like long slapstick mm-hmm. scenes of alligators doing stuff or maybe it's crocodiles it's one of the two of them but it's it is absolutely ridiculous it's a film that ends with the happy ending of the fred mcmurray character's daughter marrying her husband they drive off into uh, industrial revolution era detroit and it's supposed to be like a happy ending like going off to the castle except it's smokestacks they're going to delta city it's like imagine Snow White's finale with them going off to the castle in the sky, except the castle looks like it's on fire. Uh, <laughs> not really violent automatically, but uh, to be fair, Fred Gary's character does box a lot in that film. So, okay, yeah, Ooh. and he's like he's pushing he's pushing sixty at that. Point. Oh yes, he's he's an old man at that point for sure. But he's all, he's also able to beat up a lot of younger men in that movie because. He is the happiest millionaire, obviously. That one's on Disney Plus. You got to watch it. It's it's at yeah. least two and a half hours long. It's incredibly long and oh, outstanding. I, well, I'm glad there's there's something from uh, prior to 1990 on there. On the the McMurray tip, uh, I saw the I think May title announcements. Criterion is bringing out a, a 4K double indemnity. I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Very excited. Fun. All right, so the circus burns. The cops arrest the ringmaster. Everything's fine now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, later, back at Laurie's Croft, uh, she's tending to his wounds, and he keeps trying to say, no, you must go help Mary, you must go help Mary, and then he does explode at her and shout at her and grab her, yes. uh, which gets her to come back and see Mary, uh, to Persuasion. which the doctor that they've hired is like, I don't, but I, upon my word, I'm a man of science, and pa, pa, pa. But the leeches aren't working, so I guess I'll let this woman speak to the child. 
<laughs> At this point, Thomasina the cat gets a flash. Uh, a lightning lightning hits a tree, which probably is symbolic of something. I'm sure this theme of why she remembers things at this precise moment. There's a there's a whole visual effect about the yeah. yeah the the lightning strike on the on the tree. She decides to run home. I am not feeling the cause and effect here, but that's uh, what do I care? Uh, and now the climax of the movie is it's well it's a lot. Uh, so the cat comes to the window of Mary's room, then runs away. The kid screams the, the cat's name. Lori then immediately tells Patty um, that he's got to be the one to go and fetch the cat because, and I'm quoting here, Thomasina holds the love that the child has lost. Um, I forgot to mention that somehow Lori knew that the cat's name was Thomasina, also called mm-hmm. the cat Thomasina, yep. which... Yeah. Sure. I feel like like there's a little hook of like no, no man of, of woman born... You know, (laughs) that doesn't quite come off. (laughs) Doesn't quite come off. Copy. So this next bit is hard for me to watch because it's Patty McGee trying to ooze sincerity and uh, uh, empathy where he reaches out and says, Thomasina, come to me. No, you must. She must come to you. Thomasina. Don't you see that if Thomasina is the love your child has lost, only you can give it back to her. Call her. Make her come. Uh, Thomasina is not having it because she informs us that she thinks he's her murderer. Um, This part is awesome. Thomasina. Come to me. For the love of God, come. Knew him now. McDewey, my murderer. And he needed me. And and she's prepared to be a real bitch to him, uh, but because Thomasina spent so much time with Laurie, this one-note font of mercy and <laughs> compassion, uh, Thomasina decides to come back. Yeah. And uh, at which point, Paddy McGee deposits this sopping wet cat, which still has tetanus into <laughs> his dying daughter's bed and everything is Jake. Everything. And this is this is not the American sniper baby, right? This is where we're back to a, a wriggling cat now. And a I just like I want to know like I, I want to know about the the chemical R and D that went into like how much fucking Thorazine or whatever do we have to pump into a cat so that it will keep its eyes open, but <laughs> still like sit still while we dump buckets of water on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That was not covered in the special features, un- unfortunately. Not a high point. And then, but everything's fine now because the, uh, Mary wakes up and is like, Thomasina, you're alive. And Daddy, you're alive again, too. <laughs> Which I, I kind of enjoyed. At least until the next time you displease me, Daddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cut to... <laughs> it's totally Twilight Zone. I wish you went to the cornfield, Daddy. Um, uh, cut to Laurie and McDewey getting married. We see them exiting the church. Uh, this is a marriage where we don't see them kissing because Patty McGee. Um, they drive away in the just married car with, is the cat there too? It's, it's the kid. It's the, uh, housekeeper, which I thought was cool. I mean, uh, Thomasina sure. is wearing like a bridesmaid's dress okay. in this scene. I definitely did not make this up. Thomasina has a dress on. Thomasina's wearing a bridesmaid dress. That's great. Big poofy shoulders, pastel color. Um, 
Timeless. And then Lori is sitting there at that table in her corseted dress with an even tighter bun, a tighter updo. All her independence and agency is gone. Happy ending. <laughs> Very Disney ending. I, I have to ask a question, by the way, because you both yeah, know Magoon yeah. so much better than I do. Is it? Is there a reason why he was so unwilling to, you know, you keep alluding to how he doesn't kiss Lori here and that that seems like that's a thing for him is that a yes, active yes. choice he's a deeply he he was a he was a deeply catholic person and he didn't think that children or people seeing at home needed to see that kind of stuff uh and he didn't choose to want to kiss anybody who was not his wife and uh i'm just extrapolating here probably not too much his wife either who knows <laughs> He has claimed that he, you know, he thought that this was just a, a matter of um, keeping the, the content kid friendly, but both in, you know, The Prisoner, which which aired at 730 in the evening and Danger Man, I think, was a similar time slot. So, so, so yeah, but he's he's very tetchy on this subject. Uh, there's one I, I think it might be a, a clip that's in that documentary about him in my mind. Mm-hmm. where he tries to rebut the suggestion that he's approved was like oh well, well here's the movie where i raped someone We're like okay bad bad rebuttal not not yeah 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 there's a nut two ends of the spectrum dude <laughs> so no but it it seems to be it seems to be him well, I, I wanted to i'm going to shift to a different thinking about the ending of this mm-hmm. there's a movie mm-hmm. i was thinking of uh, in terms of the only the power of love that the cat has that, you know, that this, this miss magical ish figure can give you brings her back to life. And there was another Disney movie I was thinking of that uh, definitely is not on Disney plus and is never going to be on Disney plus, but I was thinking of song of the South a little bit. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Song of the South, which definitely is not available anywhere in the world. If you find it's, it's very easy to find bootleg copies. Not that you should, of course. It'd be terrible. But you'd be better off looking for the Star Wars holiday special. Yeah, right. The, the live action portion of the film, so much of it is about the little boy who is learning all these stories from this, you know, unfortunately, very racist, quintessential magical Negro trope of a character, Uncle Remus. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the parent, his mother, does not want him to talk to Uncle Remus. She's worried about the influence he has. Feel free to read into that however you like. Um, <laughs> you know, there, it's and it ends with the character mm-hmm. being attacked by a bull and only being brought back because Uncle Remus shows up to tell him another story about Br'er Rabbit. And it's obviously not a one-to-one comparison, but I was thinking a lot about that in terms of how Mary is brought back to life magically by the healing power of the wriggling cat. (laughs) I mean, I I can see that, but like, isn't it, isn't, doesn't Trinity bring Neo back because of the power of love? Isn't that a whole thing or isn't it or the other way around? I think that's right. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It is a trope. Now, at this point, Josh, we rate the movie on a scale of one to six. Um, what do you think, Chris? Should we go? Should we wind up with Josh, the disinterested bystander here, or should we start with him? He's our Disney expert. He he can take the That's historical view. True. His will be by far the most informed evaluation. So, absolutely, let's start with Josh. What do you All say, right. Josh? One to six. Well, so the, wait. I have one more thing I want to say as I'm thinking about this please, right please, before I rate. So. 
you the the man of science man of faith thing i keep thinking about lost now which isn't quite the prisoner but i feel like it's in the same vein and the sure. debate of you know, wouldn't have existed without the prisoner right certainly uh yeah descendant of for sure yeah. and the, and there's that worrying impulse here that said i i th- i have to go with a two out of six because i've seen so oh. many of these live action films of this time and some of them i mean there were times when I'd be just taking, I'd start taking notes and they were, you know, normal, basic, a couple comments. Then by the end, I'd be like shouting at the movie essentially through my notes because of how <laughs> weird or inexplicable it was. And there are touches of that here, but it keeps feeling mm-hmm. like the movie inches towards something weird and then backs away. And it inches towards something strange and then backs away. And then it throws in this circus nonsense at the end, which is. You know, if this was on Disney Plus, it would get that content warning, but primarily is there as a a classic <laughs> at yes. the end. Contains depictions of smoking. It doesn't have the courage of its convictions. So two out of six. Mm-hmm. Two two lives of Thomasina for me. All right. Give me a couple examples, Josh, of Disney films of this era or slightly later, slightly earlier, that are weirder besides The Happiest Millionaire. Like, I love hearing that they get weird because my experience of these kid-friendly Disney films are that they're just on rails and um, they, they they do not go off the rails at any point. So what, give me some other ones that are like, that you were shouting at. I mean, I'm thinking of, you mentioned before the Gnome Mobile. There's always that one. <laughs> I mean, I think that what, one really good example just of films that start with a weird premise to, to begin with, the Love Bug films, they, already, they begin oh, sure. weird enough because it, the first one's from 68 and they try kind of to have the hippie side of things. It's not just mm. set in San Francisco, <laughs> but Buddy Hackett's character is kind of like a, a palatable <laughs> Disney version. Buddy Hackett is a hippie. That's Yes. <laughs> My God. I, I mean, I, I had a storybook of uh, an adaptation of The Love Bug and I, like, I watched the films on TV, but I recall nothing about them other than the, the car. And the kid calling uh, calling Herbie Ocho. Yeah, and the first one's the best one because it has the benefit of Dean of such a great cast: Dean Jones, Michelle Lee, Buddy Hackett, David Tomlinson. But by the second and third, how many? There were five. There were five movies. There was oh. a TV show in the eighties and a remake TV movie in the nineties, directed by future Marvel director Peyton Reed. Before he directed right. Bring It On, he directed The Love Bug, starring Bruce Campbell. Not a joke. Um, Bruce Campbell was in a love bug. I believe wow. Bruce Campbell was the lead. He was the 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 uh, human lead character of that. But those movies, those 70s era live action Herbie movies, I mean, by the second and third ones, Keenan Wynn is playing a businessman who's like being chased by Herbie and then Herbie's on a cruise ship. And it's just, mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird choices that come from the basic mm-hmm. idea of, hey, we need to have a fourth movie about this sentient car. What's he going to do now? <laughs> did you uh, did you cover all the Herbie movies together, Josh, or did you do did they each get an individual episode? Oh, I did individual episodes for every single one of them way back in twenty twelve. Good, Good for me or bad for me? I think we. I I would say yeah, bad for me. <laughs> Yep, but good for your listeners. You know, respect for your for your rigor, for your your mm-hmm. commitment to thorough scholarship. No corners cut. Well, this ties into my rating because I grew up on cheesy kids Disney films from another era, like from from a slightly later era than this one, like The Cat from Outer Space and The Shaggy DA and Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo and The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. Uh, <laughs> they were all 
toothless and cute. Isn't that the Simpsons episode? The computer wore tennis shoes? Isn't isn't that what it's based on? Oh, okay. I didn't even realize. Okay. Didn't. Wow. Um, And just cute and samey. I don't think they were this boring, though. Um, They were all, they intended to be more broadly comic. They had slapstick, they had jokes. They didn't have Oedipal resentment like this one does, (laughs) I don't think. But I just kept wanting this movie to be more, and I was looking at it from you know twenty twenty two eyes. But still, I, I think it's an interesting artifact. And and Josh, just understand for a second, like if you are a Magoon completist, which I guess we are. <laughs> the, the evidence we can't this... turn back now. No, I mean we're we're going to choose our our uh, next film from this truly uh, dispiriting <laughs> list of candidates that I have handy. <laughs> I don't like seeing Patrick McGowan genuflecting to like this faith-based crap like this, although he was a devout man, but like, I don't like seeing him do it. Uh, But the message of of this movie being there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophies. I mean, ironically, I have a philosophical disagreement with with that. So I, I just, I found long stretches of this film boring. I thought the character of Lori should just be a lot more interesting than a person who immediately surrenders all of her things because she believes in God. Um, I got to give this a 1.5. Like it, it gets the 0.5 from me because you can see what Pat McGowan is bringing and what he specifically does. And nobody else could bring what he brings to this film in precisely the way he does. That said, it just, it just, I found it boring. Chris. Well, I don't like that I'm quickly emerging as the softy, easy grader. Mm-hmm. You gave this the same score you gave Silver Streak. Um, yeah. yeah. Which I, yeah, and I, and I am being a little nasty by um, letting Josh know that, uh, Kevin, his stated affection for, for Silver Streak. Watch it again, Josh. I, yeah. it again. <laughs> but hang on now. I'm not saying Silver Streak is a great film, but having just watched this movie, I mean, Silver Streak is better than Three Lives of Thomasina. I I am willing to go on that hill to die on. I am going to die on Ooh. that hill. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, I'm going to, I think I, I gave Silver Streak 2.5. Um, I can see that. I mean, that movie uses Magoon well, but it, it, it does not use Richard Pryor nearly well enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to give this a 3.5. 3.5 because Tell McGoon me. is crazy for the Tell two scenes more. because <laughs> I'm not evaluating this against the film that it could be I'm evaluating it as the the film that it is so 3 3.5 I thought the what, I thought the dream what? ballet was awesome I thought the bit uh like that how psychotic Patty McGee seems at the end when he's you know come to me Tapasina come come to me come to me and the way the camera is zooming in on his face and he's not blinking and uh, I mean just he's got those baby blues yeah can't argue with the baby blues yeah this is ridiculous this is um unduly generous but uh, I I did not hate this film I did not find this a chore and you know it's an hour shorter than the scarecrow of Romney Marsh (laughs) that's true (laughs) 3.5 all right what the hell it's, it's Glenn's birthday I am I am moved to charity <laughs> as, as are all good people as are all good Christians on the day of my birth <laughs> you should be tithing and and giving alms to the poor on the day of my birth all right do we have a wrap-up do we have you, tell me tell me you got something to send us out strong Chris I'd like to ask Josh to uh, plug 
whatever he'd like to plug. And of course, thank him once again for his participation in this uh, dubious enterprise. What would you like to shill for, Josh Spiegel? Thank you uh, both for having me. I really appreciated it. Um, first of all, I would love to shill for Story Living by Disney. I can't wait to live there. <laughs> <laughs> that That's going to be like a sorry to bother you type thing, right? Where you're you're like signing away your remaining life to the the Disney Corporation. And they, they give you some Soylent Green to, and a little pod to... Uh, Stay in until you expire naturally. Just a real good stew, like a, like a slum gullion of uh, all sorts of different kind of dystopias all in one. Uh, no, the easiest thing to, to, if anybody's interested, you can follow me on Twitter at Masterpiece, as Chris mentioned at the start here. I uh, I got into two things during the pandemic. I know some people did the sourdough starters or I'm going to learn a new hobby. My two things were Columbo, ironically enough. I'd never seen Columbo before the pandemic. Oh. So that was where I really got to know McGowan. Uh, and doing yep. March Madness style brackets about Disney stuff on Twitter all the yeah. time. I don't know yeah, why yeah, I like yeah. it, but I do. It's fun. Uh, and right now I'm in the middle of Disneyland attractions, but uh, something very different will be coming after that. Has that experience restored your faith in, uh, in humanity or has it made pe- you think that people are crazy? Collectively that people are crazy. Uh, I mean, that specific experience has not made me feel like people are crazy. Lots of stuff that has happened in the last two years have made me feel that way. Most of the victors of the various brackets I have held have been uh, unsurprising, unhorrifying, but there's always the next one. So we'll see. There's always the next one. You never know. It's a a vicious, vicious Thunderdome, the the Twitter poll. Um, (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, but before we we move on to our uh, our next phase, we still have the 2009 AMC Jim Caviezel Ian McKellen reboot yep. to get to. There's a, a Magoon film on the the Criterion Channel now called All Night Long, where he plays a a jazz drummer named Johnny Johnny Jazz. Close. <laughs> it's really close. Johnny Cousin. Okay. Johnny sure. Cousin, a Basil Dearden film called All Night Long. Again, it's on the, the Criterion channel. That that might actually be good. There's uh, a Man in the Iron Mask from 1977. Mm-hmm. Richard Chamberlain, Louis Jordan, directed by Mike Newell. Like mm-hmm. that Mike Newell? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to find out. There could be more than one, one Mike Newell out there. Uh, the Moonshine War. Adapted by Elmore Leonard from his own his own novel. Oh, see that promises a southern accent. Mm, we might need to do that one. Ooh, With more boy. more justified coming, I'm I'm really feeling Elmore Leonard. Not that there's ever ever a bad time. The oft mentioned and now obtained on Blu-ray by me, and and most of the titles I've mentioned previously are are only on standard DVD, but in high def Blu-ray you can get Baby Secret of the Lost Legend, the uh, better to appreciate the primitive pre Jurassic Park dinosaur effects. You guys are in for a trip with that uh, one. Yeah, you, you, was, it, was this a Disney film? Oh, it was. Yeah. I did an episode on that one featuring an Academy Award winning screenwriter. The, not a good performance. I'll let you guys find out who it is, Tom. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, you're, you're certainly welcome to come back. No, for, I'm good to not. That, that one, oh boy, I've seen that. <laughs> I know what you're in for. Okay. <laughs> uh, Glenn, this film also stars your beloved Sean Young. Sure, We've, uh, sure. Like, like slotted into your, your narrow, uh, ever-slimming window of heterosexuality, or, or did yeah, at one well, time. It was probably after her, it was probably her, if she's not wearing a leather pantsuit, <laughs> or a, a tight leather thing, and she's, it's not, if, if it's not 1980, whatever the hell that 
Blade Runner came 82. out. 82, yeah. So. It's in the jungle, so I, I wouldn't recommend leather. Mm. There, there is something that Magoon is in from 1997 called Hysteria that I can't find anywhere. Mm. It sounds like a horror film. Yeah, and then real early, like before the Disney phase, Zarak, a Terrence Young joint, Terrence Young, who would go on to direct three of the first four Bond movies. Uh, Victor Mature is the lead in this one, and it also stars Anita Ekberg. I think Magoon is only in it for <laughs> maybe about as long as he's in The Phantom. And of course, our beloved Linda Holmes has already agreed to come back to uh, review A Time to Kill with us from 1996. Oh, I forgot he was in that. Um, oh, and and Brass Target, a 70s movie that, that sort of posits that uh, I think Douglas MacArthur was actually murdered instead of dying in a car crash because some guys wanted to steal some Nazi gold or something. Yeah, that DVD is in the other room. So uh, there's just no way for me to, to give you any more specific detail than that. I was hoping we could persuade uh, our buddy Matt Gorley to come back for that one. But being that he's a father now, he may be... Uh, Oh, and I, I meant at the top of the episode, not that she's going to hear this, but to congratulate uh, Alexandra Petri, two-time guest on the birth okay. of her new child. She she published mm-hmm. a, a hilarious and visceral account of the terrifying, <laughs> painful sensation of childbirth in the Washington Post. This makes her the second guest on our show who was um, like child imminent when she was with us, Glenn. Oh. Uh, what what percentage of credit do you think we're due now for the, for the Gorley baby and Petri baby that have both... Yeah, well, uh, hey, we can... If, if we can be used to uh, <laughs> induce pregnancy, <laughs> induce <laughs> induce delivery, then let's let's uh, claim that. Yeah. Let's put that in the uh, iTunes notes and say, "Explicit induces labor." All right. Well, it sounds to me like you were most enthusiastic about the Moonshine War. Only for the accent thing, but uh, it's going to be tough. If to I get. show you the the video box, oh, it's it's blurred out. It's blurred out because it's like it's like it's like in witness protection. It's feet, Glenn. It's it's a close up. It is an illustration of feet. It's feet in the foreground, bare feet, and then shotgun barrel in the background. So you're probably glad yeah. you won't see this. Co-stars uh, Richard Widmark and Alan Alda, uh, and okay. under Magoon's top billing, the tagline: "The Eighteenth Amendment prohibited drinking. It didn't say a word about killing, double crossing, or blowing things up." These are my that's my three passions. <laughs> this really sounds like a Patrick Swayze movie from uh, about 1989. I, I think we should commit to doing the Moonshine War next. Give it a shot. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Happy birthday, Glenn. Thank you, man. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. I want you to You better leave. Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our silly theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on bass. Find out more about Casey at vitalvoicetraining.com and or caseyaaronclark.com. 
Follow us on Twitter at NotAnumberPod. Follow us on Instagram at A Degree Absolute. And write the Citizens Advice Bureau. This one's very important. At A Degree Absolute at Gmail. We love to get your emails. Most importantly, rate, review, subscribe. You know, if you leave us a five-star review on Apple or Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use to hear this, along with your wildest prisoner take, we keep promising this, but we are going to honor this promise eventually. Uh, leave that hot take about what's going on in the village, and we will read your take on a future episode when we return to fully prisoner-themed content, which will be happening soon, I promise. Finally, you know, Glenn and I keep talking about potentially monetizing the show or maybe just in a modest way starting a Patreon or something. Um, And the last time I brought it up, Glenn got really weird and said something about how, like, instead of just, you know, chipping in five bucks a month or whatever you deem appropriate, our listeners really ought to make a sacrifice to show their fealty to us. Kill your pet. That is it. Not not at all on board with that. That's a Glenn thing, not a me thing. I love my little kitten Like you had us when you were born You better leave You better leave You better leave My kitten all It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. Did you do 439 episodes Stone Cold Sober, Josh? Oh, no, I'm sure I did a few where I had something to drink. There were bonus episodes. We did one on the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> I'm sure that I had a drink. Oh, there. oh I got to listen to that. That's amazing. One of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. I was going to say, what would it be without Diane Carroll as the weird sex (laughs) dancer luring Chewbacca's father? Sex dancer for the the old, for the Chewbacca's like creepy old dad. I I had no idea that that was where Boba Fett came from until very recently. Like, because I had always been fat. I mean, you know, long before the the streaming era, the Disney purchase or any of that, I was like, as a little kid, I remember wondering why the hell people cared about Boba Fett so much. I was like, minor character, barely in it. Yep. Why are my friends coveting this action figure? I, I didn't know the whole history that had given him such. But now you know his book, right? You've read his book. Oh yeah, I've I've read I've, I've read his incredibly discursive book that you know I enjoyed most when there I found chapters of other books um, sort of arbitrarily <laughs> yeah, yeah. stitched into the binding. Home stretch. We're hitting the home stretch here.